Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. In this episode, we will be talking to Dr. Jennifer Burt from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where she is the Extreme Precision Radial Velocity Investigation Scientist. Welcome to the show, and what a job title you have there. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and absolutely agree. It is such a mouthful and hard to fit on a business card. so coming up on the show we're going to cover all things radial velocities uh, how new planets get confirmed and of course adopt a new exoplanet into our little crazy weird and wacky exocast family so first let me properly introduce our guest as i said jen is at nasa's jpl where she is now a star scientist in the exoplanet office jen got her phd from the university of california at santa cruz where she worked to commission an automated planet-finding telescope, which we want to hear a lot more about. How does that work? Uh, Following the PhD, she moved to MIT, where she worked on follow-up for test mission, discovering and confirming some very nice little planets that I think we've announced on the show previously before, uh, using the high-precision radial velocity instruments on the Magellan Clay Telescopes located in Chile. Jen then moved to California to join JPL as a postdoc and now as a staff scientist working on and now the lead of their extreme precision radio velocity team to follow up and confirm potentially thousands of exoplanets, I'm sure, right? Uh, That's a a high order, but we're trying real hard. (laughs) (laughs) Jen, it is absolutely amazing to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, I think it would be nice to start off, um, you know, for those listeners who maybe aren't up to speed on on what the radial velocity technique involves, do you want to tell us about, you know, what is an RV, how do we get one from a star, and how can we find planets with them? Absolutely, yeah. So similar to a lot of the ways we find exoplanets, radial velocities are what we call an indirect detection method. So we're not actually looking at the planets themselves, we are looking at the effect that they have on their host stars. And the way that this works is when you picture a planet going around a star, what we normally think about is that the star kind of sits in space, minding its own business, and the planet goes around it in a circle. Uh, It turns out that's not entirely correct. The planet does tug on the star gravitationally, and it causes the star to make a much smaller orbit in the middle of that system. So you can think of it kind of like the star doing a little hula hoop motion as the planet goes around. And it's that wobble, that little circle that we're looking for. And we do that by taking spectra of the star. So we use a telescope and an instrument that can take the light from a star and break it into a very finely sampled rainbow. And for most stars, for all stars, if you look at the rainbow that they produce when you break their light up like that, there will be little dark lines that create kind of a chemical fingerprint of the star. And so by looking at where those lines are, how deep those lines are, these little black spaces in the rainbow, you can tell what kinds of atoms and molecules exist in the outer layers of that star. So you can look for signatures of things like hydrogen and helium that almost every star has, but also metals like iron or carbon or oxygen, um, because astronomers think that everything that's not hydrogen and helium is a metal, which is yeah. <laughs> a thing we can fight about with the chemists. Um, And so if a star is kind of sitting in space and not doing much, we expect that chemical fingerprint to stay in the same place. 
But if the star is moving either towards or away from us, those lines get Doppler shifted. And so this is the same phenomena that you may be familiar with if you heard like a fire truck or an ambulance go by. As it approaches you, the pitch of the vehicle siren goes up and then right as it passes by, it drops back down. That same thing happens with light. So if a star is moving towards us, the lines get pushed to a shorter frequency, a higher pitch, a bluer color. So they move to the blue end of the spectrum. And then as the star starts to move away from us, they do the opposite. They spread out a little bit. They go to a lower frequency, a lower pitch, the redder end of the spectrum. And so what we do is we measure the positions of those little fingerprints, those lines, very, very accurately over observations taken over many days, weeks, months, years apart. And if you see them moving back and forth from blue to red to blue to red in a, a periodic fashion, then we can say, oh, there is something that is causing that star to move in a circle. It might be due to a planet. So that's the, the basics of how we do RV detections is you take many, many spectra of the star, you look for tiny shifts and you see if they make kind of a sinusoidal motion. And that sinusoid tells us about the orbital period of the planet, how long it takes to go around the star. And then the amplitude, the size of the sine curves tells us something about how the mass of the planet compares to the mass of the star. So one of the things in your, in your title is this kind of uh, extreme precision. It's this really kind of what, what does that mean? What does extreme precision mean? What are we talking about here? How many lines are we looking at? Like, is there a way to quantify or understand a little bit about how much information you get of these stars? Yeah, absolutely. So the radio velocities detected the first exoplanet around a main sequence star. So 51 peg B back in the mid 90s was a radio velocity detection. They were responsible for the first hundred or so um, planets that we found. Actually, the first couple hundred, I believe. And those signals were all very large. These were due to planets, often what we call hot Jupiters. So planets the size and mass of Jupiter that are orbiting their stars every few days. Because of that, they are causing their star to move around at hundreds of meters per second. And so that means that if you think about a detector, um, just like the detectors or the, the cameras in your cell phone, and you think about a single pixel in there, these stars or these planets were causing their stars and the lines in their stars to move back and forth by like a tenth of a pixel, which is probably not a thing you can see with your eye when you're looking at images, but it's something that a computer can pick out pretty readily and say, okay, something's going on here. I see these lines mm. moving back and forth across a tenth of a pixel. Pay attention to this, please. Tell me what's happening here. <laughs> Nowadays, as we're trying to get to smaller and smaller planets, they induce smaller and smaller shifts. Their gravitational tug on their host star is scaled down, both because the mass of the planet is lower, and often if they are on further orbits, if they're further away from their star, the gravity scales down because of that as well. And so this means that if we're trying to find things like sub-Neptunes or super-Earth planets, those are often at a scale of about one meter per second. And so that's something like, one one thousandth of a pixel moving back and forth. That gets a little harder to find in the data. You gotta look really carefully to dig those out. And what extreme precision radial velocity refers to is this goal of trying to get to uh, the ability to detect an Earth analog. So an Earth mass planet orbiting in the habitable zone of a sun-like star. And so that is a signal of about nine centimeters per second. That's another order of magnitude below what we can do right now. Uh, for context, again, if you think about the camera that is in your cell phone, if you zoom way, way in, that camera is made up of a silicon lattice, the so little atoms of silicon all in nicely ordered mm -hmm. rows and columns. And we're talking about shifts of like eight silicon atoms. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> and so that that is a thing that we don't actually know how to do yet. We are working real hard to develop that ability, but we're fighting both against you know the the intensity of that detection. It's a part in ten to the ten that we're trying to measure here to have the ability to really zoom in and see those shifts. And then also we're fighting against what the stars themselves are doing, because in mm -hmm. addition to the signals that the planet contributes to your radial velocity data, you also see signals from the stars themselves. So those stars are rotating. They have things like dark spots and bright plage areas coming across their surfaces. Uh, most stars are convective. So we see the upwelling of hot plasma on the surface. We see pulsation modes. Like bubbling in a pot, right? So exactly. it's like you're seeing this massive cells of, of different temperatures and energies moving around, which cause their own little bit of noise. Is it, it's essentially just, is it random noise or is there like a pattern to it? So we used to treat it as random noise. This was the approach for many years because the planets we were finding had big enough signals that you could kind of bin down and like reduce the impact of the activity. Nowadays, there are many folks whose whole careers are studying stellar activity and they will get mad at you if you call it noise. So it's become like a <laughs> naughty word in the radial velocity vocabulary. It is not noise. It is a signal unto itself and it should be treated as such. And that's true. It means that when we're thinking nowadays about how to design surveys and how to observe you know, stars to look for these small planets, you really should be taking into account what is the rotation period of the star? What do I know about the convection time scale? And then plan your RV observation such that you're covering those signals in enough detail that you can treat them as independent signals and model them in your data so that you can kind of resolve what is the planet versus what is the star. And that gives you a, a better more fidelity, more belief in the planet signal that you're detecting. So in terms of this progress from, you know, giant planets close to their star to extreme precision Earth-like Earth planets, how much of that do you think is, is going to be through technological development and how much of that is through understanding these stellar activity, as you, you said there? Yeah, so I think we've, we've done a lot on the technology side, especially over the last decade. Um, and so we've kind of moved away from the first instruments that were doing routine RV detections used an iodine cell to figure out what the, the wavelength, what the position of those lines were. And that's really important because if you want to measure tiny shifts in the positions of your lines, you need to know those positions very accurately. And so the way we used to do that was you would take the light from the telescope, you would pass it through a cell of iodine, you would heat it up just enough that it was in a gaseous form, so it's kind of like a purple haze, mm -hmm. and that would imprint this iodine spectrum, this forest of very dense, very narrow iodine lines. And we would use that to back out, okay, this is exactly where the stellar lines, the lines from the star are in this data. That works pretty well. It gets you down to a few meters per second, maybe even one meter per second or so precision. Um, but it's also sensitive to what's going on around the instrument. You can see changes in temperature and pressure and humidity. That's really good because it means that your wavelength solution is tracking all of those things. So they're not impacting your ability to measure the lines. But as we started making newer instruments, folks were like, we can do better than this. We can isolate <laughs> the instrument. We can put it inside these very carefully temperature and pressure controlled uh, cryostats and enclosures where we you know, pump down to vacuum and we keep them very cool. So we're just going to totally isolate the instrument from the outside world. We're not going to let it see anything that's happening at the observatory, inside the telescope, et cetera. And we've started uh, developing new wavelength calibration systems so that instead of the iodine approach was very powerful, it only let you use a very small part of the stellar spectrum, about 
a thousand angstroms or so. So kind of like the green part of the rainbow is what you could do science in. Mm. Nowadays, folks are using other approaches where you have uh, these stabilized spectrographs. So you're controlling the environment and you're pairing that with something like a laser frequency comb or uh, you know, a thorium atlas, something else where now you can use all the way from the blue out to the red. So you're, you know, using the power inherent to the entire spectrum. And that has increased the precision because you have more lines to measure the positions of and to get a better accuracy on, on your measurement. And it's allowing us to look at different types of stars. So redder stars, M dwarfs, where most of their light comes out in the red. Those were a bit of a challenge with iodine instruments because, you know, we're only doing science in the green part of the spectrum. Most of their light for the endorse is in the red. Nowadays, we can use the whole whole rainbow, the whole visible spectrum. And so that's really been an advancement. That's getting us down with the newest instruments, things like NUID, which is a Kitt Peak on the Wind Telescope, or Express, which is at Lowell Observatory on the Discovery Telescope, and Espresso, which is down south on the VLT. Those are pushing to like 30 centimeters per second. So I think that's probably the, the current limit that we're seeing. Um, we think that technologically that's a pretty good place to be. You know, the, the goal, of course, is eventually to get to 10 or even 5 centimeters per second. But 30 mm-hmm. is a good starting point. Now we need to observe a bunch of stars at 30 centimeters per second and then take that data and say, OK, what can we learn about the stellar activity in more detail because we have this more precise data, because we can start to resolve stellar signals that are too small to be seen before they were lost in the noise and the uncertainty of the, you know, couple meter per second level data. And so that's been a big focal point of these new instruments. Almost all of them are revisiting very bright nearby stars and saying, Mm -hmm. can we push down to a new level of understanding of the stars themselves? And when searching for planets whose signals were maybe too small to be seen in decades past. So, um, Jen, is your work on the automated planet finder also in terms of a, a technological development or more of a quality of life development for astronomers <laughs> who don't have to stay up all night? <laughs> uh, a little bit of both. So it turns out that the best way to get your telescope automated quickly and efficiently is to put the grad student who is in charge of automating it also in charge of observing, because then you have a lot of incentive to make that telescope run itself. And so, yeah, when I was a grad student at Santa Cruz, uh, the APF, the Automated Planet Finder, was just coming online. It saw first light, I think, two years into my PhD, and I helped with this automation process. The goal here was centered around the idea that we think is very true, that for radial velocity surveys to be efficient and effective, you need high cadence. You need to be able to look at your stars, you know, once, if not a couple times a night, and you want to be able to do that for many, many nights in a row. Mm -hmm. And again, this is to help us get at the ability to sample not only the planetary signals, but these many timescales that the stellar signals are happening on. And stellar variability happens on timescales from hours to months to decades, if we're including things like magnetic activity cycles. So the APF was designed around the only thing this telescope is going to do is take radio velocity data of stars. It will not look at galaxies. It will not look at solar system objects. Like It has one purpose in life. And so to make that feasible, you can't observe every night. Like I tried for six months. It almost broke me. <laughs> do not oh, recommend. No. <laughs> um, I became very nocturnal. I went to the doctor at some point. They're like, you're vitamin D deficient. You live in mm-hmm. Santa Cruz. How is this? Like, you live next to a beach. How did that happen? I was like, I'm an astronomer and I don't stay up during the day anymore. Um, oh, wow. But yeah, so it was great. It, it was a great combination of working with the folks who, like, actually write software to control the telescope. Like, tell the telescope to point in this direction at this elevation, open the shutters, open the mirrors, etc. And then my part was more 
How do you design software that can run an intelligently designed survey that can decide what mm. planet, what stars to observe in real time each night based on things like what is the weather doing? Like, is it partially cloudy? Is the air mass or sorry, is the, the seeing is the atmospheric jitter high such that it's hard to look at faint things? Um, and then combine that with like, what stars are we interested in? When's the last time we observed each star? What kinds of planets do we think mm -hmm. might be around these stars and what kind of precision do we need when we look at them? And so it was this cool melding of technology and science and, you know, how do I simulate the thought process that I go through when observing in a way that can be captured by like a little Python algorithm? A lot of if statements. <laughs> Indeed, yes. And that, the first iteration of it was this like horrifically messy, if then, if, you know, else if then, and just a, a big slew. Kind of like a, a, you know, first first run through, you know, setting up that logical pathway and going, this is what I'm thinking. This is the, the process that I yeah. go through and then making that neater and efficient, I suppose. Is it, did you find that once you had automated it, it was better than than you doing it yourself? Or, or is there like, a, it's still an equivalent. Yeah. So it definitely started out, as you say, as like a flow chart with many colored marker things on it. So like that was <laughs> the first iteration of the APM. I think I still have it somewhere is like this big block diagram with lots of arrows. It does some things better. It, it removes the human bias that can often show up in surveys. And so this is a big complaint that folks have with radio velocity data when you try mm -hmm. to use it for things like exoplanet demographics. Like, can we use RV surveys that have been running for 30 years now to say something about what kinds of planets exist? And that ends up being really challenging because most RV surveys, especially ones that started, you know, 20 years ago, there's this level of like, I've decided I don't like this star anymore, and so we're not going to look at it. And that wreaks havoc on people who are trying to synthesize your data into like a robust statement of what could we see, what could we not see, where are our precision, uh, our sensitivity levels at. So the, the scheduler removes that, which is really nice. There is this very, you know, encoded logic flow that you have to obey. It definitely gets tripped up sometimes, and this is still true, like when the weather is patchy, the worst thing in the world, as an in-person observer too, is when it's a cloudy night with just some holes of clear sky. And they're what we often call sucker holes because you will be like, there's one, slew the telescope over there. We will do science in this tiny part of the sky that is clear. And then by the time you get there, it has gone away. And like another one has opened elsewhere in the sky. Mm. And so you spend all night chasing these like little bits of clear sky. And there's just, it's a, it's a terrible way to try and do science. You should just call it and go to bed. So yeah. things like that, really variable conditions can be challenging. Um, having, you know, enough bright stars that you can fall back on when the conditions are like, oh, it's kind of cloudy or oh, the seeing's really bad. Mm -hmm. Like you need to have a robust list. The telescope thinks it can still do useful science on because otherwise it will just close itself and be like, I'm done. I have nothing else to look at. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and then, you know, there are, there are human elements or, or physical elements of like, a door got left open in the observatory and the telescope when someone went in to clean it earlier and that throws up alarms and, you know, no science can happen until someone goes and like reassures the telescope in person that it is okay. <laughs> like, I know, I know they left the door open. I'm so sorry. It's all going to be fine. 
that that you know I imagine was fairly easy when you were you know at Santa Cruz because the telescope was fairly nearby I understand but you've been working with telescopes in Chile and, and in other places where it's you know much harder to, to go and, and do that so how does the how's your process changed with what you've been doing since you you started in your PhD designing an instrument nearby and moving on to these bigger bigger projects with with different kinds of telescopes how's that process evolved yeah, it's, it's a very different method of observing. So for things like, you know, the Magellan telescopes, which are six meters, for things like Gemini, which is eight meters, has Maroon X on it nowadays, you don't get to just leave your instrument on it all the time. It is not like mounted to the telescope or, you know, held somewhere carefully where it's just always ready to go. Those instruments go on for designated runs. So it's like, okay, we're going down to Chile. We are at the telescope. We'll roll out the giant box that PFS, the Planet Finder <laughs> Spectrograph, is kept in. And like you literally roll it across the ground, bring it up on a lift and like plug it into the telescope. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that, that's the first thing you do when you get to Chile is uh, honestly, that's not true. The folks who work at the telescope who know how all of this stuff works do this. You stand nearby <laughs> right. holding a clipboard like you might have something useful to tell these people who have been doing this for a decade and are like, please just stay out of our way. Like we do this once a month. You're just going to complicate things here. You can have a hard hat so you feel like you're official. When you say roll it up, like how big are we talking here for this one instrument that you're attaching to a telescope? Yeah, the Boxer PFS is probably about five feet tall and six feet long and a few feet deep. That's like a Hannah Square. That's Yeah, it's like a large refrigerator. <laughs> Maybe the best analogy. <laughs> and yeah, it's just on little wheels. You like push it kind of thing. For for the newer instruments that are heavily stabilized. So PFS is one of these iodine-based instruments where you get to correct out everything that it sees about the environment because of that iodine cell. So you're saved in some ways from like, oh, we jostled it a little too strongly. Like that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. For instruments that are not like that, so the the new RV instrument that's going to go down to the Keck telescopes in Hawaii, hopefully later this summer, it's called the Keck Planet Finder, KPF. KPF gets its own room. It gets a room in like the basement of the observatory where no one is allowed to like open the door or breathe on it because again, you want it to be as isolated as possible. And so in that case, what you're doing is running big, long fibers from where the instrument lives up to the telescope. And it's just like that fiber plugs into a front end of the telescope to allow data to come through. So again, it's not on the telescope all of the time necessarily, but the moving pieces are just this fiber and not like we're going to move the whole instrument. So that's a little easier. You mentioned quite a lot of uh, new spectrographs there on, on different telescopes, you know. Marunex, Nuid, APF, Express, mm -hmm. KPF, Maroon. Uh, there's, there's, there's European ones too. So many PFs in this business. We need to be yeah. more creative. <laughs> but I'm wondering, like, these are all led by individual institutions. Their, their target list is determined by whoever those observers are, and it seems quite separate. So I was just wondering about how, in order to push to this goal of detecting Earth-like planets, whether there needs to be you know, coordination. And, and it, I guess, I mean, you're the person to ask because you, you seem to be the person trying to coordinate it, right? I am. Yeah, I have taken up the challenge here at JPL of trying to bring together the RV community. Um, so I, I think there is a lot of acknowledgement among anyone thinking about trying to get to, you know, we're going to detect Earth 2.0 type science that this is not going to be a problem that one team solves. Like you can't do it at the scale of one professor and their postdocs and grad students working on it. It is, it's bigger than that. And so recently, as of a, a few months ago, we started setting up this EPRV research coordination network. 
And so this is what I'm, I'm leading now. I'm kind of like facilitating it. It has a steering committee comprised of a bunch of folks who are thinking about stellar variability. We're trying to expand that to bring in more folks who are thinking about the instrumentation and the design and the observing point of view as well. But the idea here is there's such a, a broad map of folks working on this science nowadays that it can be really easy to not stay on top of what each little group is doing. And I think that's really detrimental to the field as a whole. I think we need to be talking mm -hmm. to each other on a very regular basis about like, what advances are you making? What did, what did you try that didn't work so that we don't waste time doing the same thing? What are ways for us to combine the data from all of these different facilities? Because you're exactly right that the target list for NUID versus Express versus Espresso, like they are developed by the PIs, the, the principal investigators of those facilities. And they don't necessarily take into account what other folks are doing. So mm. the, the research coordination network is meant to increase, you know, collaboration, coordination, cooperation between these groups and try and get us to a point where we all know what's going on. We are finding new ways to collaborate and combine our data in a way that advances studies of, you know, whether it's variability looking at the sun. Most of the new RV instruments have little solar telescopes attached to them. They're little like 10 centimeter telescopes that just, they look at the sun for six hours because no one else at the observatory wants to do anything with the telescope during that time of day, which is great for us. But then also things like, you know, let's take a given data set or a handful of data sets and have every group that's thinking about ways to model and mitigate stellar variability do their best. Like what is the best you can do at removing the signal of the star? And then let's compare all of those and figure out which methods treat which parts of the variability most accurately, most precisely. And so we're doing things like having, you know, regular talk seminars now, which is great. We just had a big science uh, seminar that was like uh, eight folks who had recently been NASA awardees thinking about stellar variability, giving talks. We're going to try and expand to like workshops and, and having folks who are developing really useful software for radio velocities give tutorials, like training other folks on how to use it so that you can apply it to your data. Mm. A goal that I have that we're just starting to think about is having coordinated observing plans. Like let's pick five stars that everyone can see. So things around the equator. And then let's have everyone look at those as often as you can. And that gives you this amazing test bed that not only, you know, you have much higher coverage, you can get, you know, the star across 24 hours of the sky, as opposed to only the eight hours where it happens to be dark in Arizona, right? This would be a handoff from facilities in Europe, in the Canary Islands, in Chile, over to Arizona, over to Hawaii. Like you just kind of hopscotch your way mm. across different instruments, but also let you compare how the instruments are doing, because we're all looking at the same star doing the same things. So, you know, how does each instrument perform? What can we learn about the strengths and weaknesses of each of them? And how can we fold that in as we start thinking about the next generation of instrument development? Yeah, very similar to the climate model into comparison projects, right? It's, it's good to know what your baseline is and that you're all producing yep. the, same, the, the same data. Yeah. Um, and you did mention there the, uh, the working internationally. Is that also a focus of the research coordination network to focus on international collaborations, uh, US, uh, Europe uh, and further afield? Yeah, that's very much the hope. So like for all that I am a NASA uh, scientist and working at a NASA center, like our goal is to bring in folks from all around the world. The Europeans in many ways have a head start on the stellar activity. They've been you know, digging into that a little bit longer and a little bit more thoroughly than a lot of our U.S. counterparts. And so this is very much an area where like we are desperate for anyone's expertise. Um, in addition to international, we're also trying to work on a cross-disciplinary effort. So we're, you know, need to start reaching out to folks in like the heliophysics world, the folks who look at mm. the sun, because we're taking this great 
you know, high precision RV data of the sun every day and starting to try and model it and understand what's happening. But I feel like every time we learn something new about the sun and you mention it to someone who's like been doing this for decades, like, oh, there's a paper from 1972 where we found that out. Like, how do you all not know this? And so there's, I I think, some gaps of knowledge that could be filled Mm -hmm. in if we can talk more to our our counterparts in working in both stellar astrophysics and and heliophysics. Because honestly, that's what radial velocity science is, right? Like we think of it as being an exoplanet field, but I would say more so it's a stellar astrophysics field. Like you are trying to figure out what the heck that star is doing and then dig out one tiny signal from that star's data. So, So, I mean, I guess the question to ask is, do you think it's possible? Do you think we can get Earth-like planets at 1 AU causing 9 centimetre per second variation of their star in the future? Or do you think that stellar activity, which is you know much a, lar- a much larger effect, is going to be make it impossible? That's an excellent... I'm going to be an optimist and say yes. It's an excellent question. <laughs> I don't know that the answer is yes. I'm going to be very honest. Right. You know, over the past year or two, there have been some really nice advancements in treatment of stellar variability. And we've gotten down to a few planets that seem... You know, securely detected at the like 50 centimeter per second level, which is still a far cry from nine, but it's it's better. I think it's gonna it's gonna require this international effort. I think it's gonna require a lot of observing time. I think folks maybe don't appreciate just how often and how aggressively we're gonna need to look at those stars. So like, I don't think we're gonna be able to do this for just any star. I think it's gonna be very concerted campaigns on stars that we care about for whatever, you know, set of science reasons we're excited about them. But yeah, I think, you know, the improvements are really rolling out. This is becoming a real focal point of the community. So I have hope that folks will will figure it out. And is there a synergy there with like um, Louvois-Habex, these, these future concepts from the big direct imaging missions, which are potentially going to be able to observe some of these planets? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what's guiding uh, a lot of the focus on, you know, this certain subset of stars we're most interested in. So these direct imaging missions are going to, you know, take pictures of the stars. They're going to directly sample the spectra, sorry, of the planets. They're going to directly sample the spectrum of the planets, which will be a first. And they're going to try and do this. You know, their whole goal is Earth analogs. And so that's great. Um, Having a spectra (laughs) of those planets will be amazing. Without a precise mass measurement, it is not clear how, how accurately you can interpret those spectrum. And so you need a mass. We can't do the masses yet. This is, this is why NASA cares about radial velocities, because NASA has this firm stance of, like, we don't do ground-based science, except for when we sometimes do ground-based science. <laughs> and it has to be in support of a flight mission. So the reason that NASA is investing in things like the NUID spectrograph, which was a joint NASA and NSF, the National Science Foundation, venture, is because it's been pitched as you need masses for these planets that you want to directly image. If you don't have them, your science is going to be questionable. So help, <laughs> dear Lord, help. <laughs> and for more on NUID, we actually talked to Paul Robertson. Oh, amazing. On Exocast 49, uh, 39B, if anyone wants to go and, go and listen to that one again. So we ha- we've, uh, we've discussed a little bit about NUID as well. Okay, yeah, absolutely go listen to that. And we've talked about solar activity at some point with Rafi Hayward on, on 34B. So <laughs> you're continuing the trend here. I love it. I actually I have a student intern who just started yesterday. She's going to be working this summer on doing some activity analysis of solar data from NUID. And the first thing I gave her to read was Rafi Haywood's thesis. <laughs> like, please yeah. take this giant brick of paper and go through it because <laughs> it is the best introduction to stellar activity GPs I know of. Yeah. So I want to pivot us a little bit. Uh, we've been talking about the stars. We've been talking about these the radial velocities, but 
this is with the goal of finding these planets. And, and that's what you, you've been doing for a while now is actually finding and confirming planets. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the work that you did with Tess and, and some of the, the planets that you might have discovered? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, there are two methods of doing RV uh, observations. And so what I've been talking a lot about is doing kind of a traditional uninformed survey where you go and you look at your, you know, 50 or 100 favorite stars and you observe them over and over again and you hope that at some point signals will emerge and you'll be like, hey, that might be a planet. The more directed form of RV observations and what I've been doing a lot recently is transiting planet follow-up. And so this is where you take the results of a mission like Kepler, or in my case, mostly TESS, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And you say, okay, TESS looked at, you know, these hundreds of thousands of stars. It has found thousands of planet candidates. Let me sort through those, find the ones that I think are scientifically interesting, and then try and confirm them. Let's try and make sure that they are real planets causing the transit signals in the star by doing RV follow-up. And so I've been focused a lot on planets that I think are interesting for atmospheric characterization uh, because it turns out TESS has found so many planet candidates that if you wanted to get five sigma masses of just the ones that are like level, what we call level one planets, so planets smaller than uh, four Earth radii, so smaller than the size of Neptune effectively, it would take you something like 100,000 hours of telescope time, which just doesn't exist. You just can't do it. (laughs) And so you have more planet candidates than you have time available Mm -hmm. to observe them. And so you need to be selective about which ones you chase after. And so one way to do that is to look at the planets and based on what we know about their host star, what we know about the size of the planet, what we know about its likely atmospheric composition based on how big it is. You know, if it's the size of Neptune, it probably has a puffy hydrogen helium atmosphere. If it's the size of, you know, one and a half Earth radii, probably not so much with the big puffy atmosphere. You can go through and say which of these would be most promising for doing atmospheric observations with a space-based mission like Hubble or JWST now that it's going up, things like that. So I use that as a guiding principle, and then you combine that with, like, which of these planets do I actually think I can measure a mass for based on how bright Mm -hmm. is the star, how, you know, the the best stars for radio velocities are relatively cool stars that have very sharp, narrow lines in their spectrum that are not rotating very quickly and that are not very active. And so you can kind of apply filters to the list of test planet candidates from a science point of view and a feasibility point of view. And there's a nice little Venn diagram. It's like, here are the ones that I could probably actually get a mass for. And so the two that I've led, uh, one is a uh, short period um, sub-Neptune planet called TOI 824b. So it goes around its star every like day and a half. It's whipping around. It's quite warm. It's around a a mid K star. I think that's accurate. It's a nice candidate for atmospheric escape because it's big enough that we think it should have a, a sizable atmosphere. And its K star is emitting enough energy in the like near ultraviolet. So just past the, the visible end of the spectrum out to slightly higher energies that we think the star is blasting the planet and probably kicking off parts of its atmosphere. So I'm, I need to like get my act together and actually write a proposal to try and look for this. I haven't done it yet. The planet got published like two years ago, so I'm slacking here. <laughs> the other one is uh, called TOI-1231b. This is a Neptune-sized planet orbiting an M star. It's on a, a long orbit for TESS, which is something like 24 days. Uh, most of the planet's TESS finds are on orbit shorter than 10 days. Uh, the really long period ones are now like a few months So TOI-1231 is uh, relatively temperate. It's about the temperature of the Earth, actually, which is fun. And it would be a really great uh, check on the idea of can you form 
water in the atmospheres of cool, you know, super Earth sub-Neptune planets. And so there's been one detection of this in a planet called K218b. It was like big news back in the day. Oh, yeah. We've talked about it. We found water on an Earth-sized planet. It's like this thing is like two and something Earth radii. This is not an Earth-like planet in any sense of that definition. Dear newspapers, (laughs) please stop saying this. Yes. Yeah, we've talked about K218b. You've heard it again here on Exocast, okay. everybody. It's a mini Neptune. It doesn't count. Yeah. Come on, people. Yeah, I figure you guys would be. I'm, I'm glad you're spreading the word correctly on this <laughs> trustworthy news source. But yeah, so, so K218b was this source of we found water. We didn't expect to find water. That is a little bit confusing based on, you know, how we model atmospheres, what we expect to exist. If it is actually water, there's a question of like, is this an outlier or is this suggesting that there's some trend that we're not currently taking into consideration when deciding what should show up in these cooler planets? So TUI 1231b would be a nice check on this. It's about the same temperature. It should be an easier atmospheric observation uh, based on the brightness of the host star, the size of the planet, things like that. So we actually have um, Hubble time for this that Laura Kreidberg led a proposal for. And as far as I know, they haven't managed to actually look at the planet yet. The long period means that it's kind of a pain. Like if you miss it one month, then you got to wait a long time for it to come back around. So we're supposed to get three or four transits of it. I think maybe one has happened and we're still waiting on the others. So we're just fingers are tightly crossed that Hubble holds on long enough that we managed to do this. Oh, Hubble will hold on long enough. Don't worry about that. (laughs) It went into like shutdown, what, over last summer or last fall? Yeah. And I, there was this moment of like, but I finally have a planet that Hubble's going to look at. Like, you can't <laughs> die yet. It's got a lot of things that need to go wrong before it dies on us. So yeah, I think we're in, it, we're in good hands. We'll get those ones in. But yeah, it does take a while to schedule them, especially, like you said, with with these long periods. And, and that also makes it really, really difficult to do the, the radial velocities. So, so how much observing time did you need to, to find the mass of this? this planet this one you know thankfully was pretty straightforward um because the star was so quiet that star is doing nothing in terms of activity and the you want the most boring stars you could possibly find yeah exactly that's really what you're looking for is like if this star is just dead and like doing nothing has no spots has no plage can't see anything and you're like amazing thank you yes <laughs> so you know we we got a nice mass measurement of that planet with only like 15 observations i think which is relatively small for a radial velocity yeah. survey each of those took half an hour so it was still like a full night and a half of telescope time on a six meter telescope which is nothing to sneeze at but all things considered it was a very efficient confirmation of a planet as hannah is highlighting a particular question there and i think it's a good one and i think it follows on very neatly it's um maybe less about how you do the science and maybe why you do it uh what in particular motivated you personally to study exoplanets because you started maybe in solar system studies if our i did yeah if our research is correct um so what, what what led you to exoplanets and um you know what is it that keeps you here yeah, so so I was one of those kids that, like, I had goals on what I was going to do when I grew up. So when I was, like, 12, I informed my mother that I was going to be an astronomer. And she kind of went, okay, good. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but, like, sure. <laughs> and then I, I went to college um, with the goal of doing astronomy. I applied to Cornell as an astronomy major, which I think confused them. They graduate, like, three astronomy majors per year. Most folks are physics majors who, like, dabble in astronomy on the side. Mm. And so when the application went in, they were like, yeah, okay, (laughs) welcome. 
And so when I was there, I, I worked mostly with a team uh, that was looking at data from the Cassini spacecraft, which was looking at Saturn for many years. And so I did ring dynamics of Saturn, looking at faint, dusty ringlets close into the planet, trying to figure out um, they were they were rings ringlets that were tilted out of the plane of most of the rings. We were trying to figure out why that was happening and what could cause it. Um, and the answer ended up being like, we think it's photon pressure from the sun. The sun is hitting these tiny particles hard enough, and there's enough solar photons hitting them that it will actually tilt the ring. And so that was a ton of fun. Um, it, it was an interesting summer. It started as an REU, so like a 10-week summer uh, research experience that then turned into a couple years uh, I stayed on with the team afterwards where, you know, my job was to take these beautiful images of Saturn's rings that like anyone in their right mind would print out and hang on their living room wall as pieces <laughs> of art. And I took every image and I reduced it to like one point on a plot. <laughs> and it just, it felt a little, I don't know, a little tragic somehow. Um, but it was a great experience. I loved it. And then towards the end of my time at Cornell it was when, you know, exoplanets, we've been finding them for a while. This is like, what, 2010, I would have been finishing college. So we found the first planet 15 years before this. We'd found another hundred of them or more in the interim. But they were just starting to make their way into like textbooks and into things mm -hmm. that you were taught as an undergraduate student taking astronomy classes. And something about like the the discovery space that was available in exoplanet science really appealed to me because applying to grad schools like i knew that i wanted to use telescopes that's not a thing i had done yet i had worked entirely with space-based data and done some lab astrophysics i wanted to observe i wanted to use telescopes and i wanted to work in an area that was just really open in terms of possibilities and types of science you could do and exoplanets was just starting to like blow up into the huge field that it is today. And so that was really appealing to me. It was also having talked to a couple people about exoplanets, having like seen talks at a couple of conferences, it was a much younger field, which was also really appealing. And it was a field with a better gender ratio than what I had seen in solar system science or like, you know, very standard stellar astrophysics. And so there were a lot more young women who were visible to me doing this kind of science. I was like, oh, this seems also like a welcoming and like a friendly field. And that was important when I was thinking about like, what do I want to do with my life? <laughs> so yeah, so I applied uh, mostly to exoplanet programs as a, a PhD student and got into a few places that had great programs. But Santa Cruz had these ties both to Lick Observatory, which is where the automated planet finder is, and to the, the Keck telescopes and all the telescopes on Hawaii. So UC observatories as a whole has a pretty broad reach. And so to me, that was like, OK, if I go here, I can like be an observer. I can learn to use telescopes. I can hunt planets with like the folks who helped start this field. Like, you know, half of the group that did the first hundred U.S. planet confirmations was based at UC Santa Cruz at the time. So that was a cool like I can go be part of this team that like has been leading this effort for years now. Well, speaking of, of hunting planets, it's that time in the show where we ask our guests to adopt a planet into our exocast family. So, Jen, what have you chosen for our weird and wacky adoptees? I feel a little bit narcissistic saying this, but I think it's got to be 1231B. Like, I love that planet so much. It was such a fun confirmation process. It was such a well-behaved star that made it easy. And it's, <laughs> it's got all of this potential for these atmospheric observations. So in addition to what I was talking about before, they're like, let's look for water and see if this confirms or refutes the idea that temperate planets, large temperate planets can host water. There's also a, a really cool thing um, that we're trying to do with another set of Hubble observations that Alice and Youngblood is leading, where 
the host star is moving away from us very quickly. It's something like 75 kilometers per second. This star is just hauling ass away from the Earth. <laughs> and that means that we have this really rare opportunity to try and look for Lyman Alpha escape on the planet. So it's a similar idea of the star is irradiating the planet. We assume that that is sloughing off some level of, of atmosphere. Um, normally, you can't look for Lyman Alpha easily, at least close into the planet, because the Earth itself has a Lyman Alpha signature. So like the, the corona of the Earth has Lyman Alpha in it. That makes things complicated. Even with Hubble, which is above a large chunk of the Earth's atmosphere, it's still there's too much that's between Hubble and space for you to do this effectively. So the only hope you have is to look at stars that are shifted so much, that are moving so quickly, that the, the Lyman Alpha is Doppler shifted, the Earth's Lyman Alpha is shifted out of the way. Um, and so we're doing this and it will give us, if it works, a really nice look into the gases that are like just barely separated from the, the gravitational hold of that planet. So we're going to be able to look at escaping gases that are much closer in than we're normally able to probe with stuff like, you know, H-alpha um, escape. So, yeah, we're, we're excited about that. <laughs> Nothing narcissistic, I think, about choosing choosing your own planet. If you don't choose it, you know, who, who would? Right. Who, who, who should? <laughs> Someone's got to give it some love. <laughs> Exactly, and you know the most about it, so I think that's a great choice. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and we don't have it there already, so it's always nice to have some new planets. I checked somewhere there was a list, and I was like, I can't fathom that anyone <laughs> else would have picked this planet, but just in case. <laughs> the, yeah, the list is getting quite long. We have had a couple of repetitions, and I think it's inevitable, right? You know, yeah. 5,000 episodes down the line, we'll start running out of exoplanets uh, <laughs> if we're still doing the show by then. We'll try to keep um, confirming them quickly enough that people yes. have new options. <laughs> uh, that's very important, I think. And for the exocup as well, of course, we need more, 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 more planets. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, is this an ExoCup contender? Like, there's a lot of atmospheric follow-up coming along. And we think that maybe this one is going to pop back up in the future. Yeah, assuming that these Hubble observations actually happen, <laughs> right? So, like, both of these programs have been approved and nominally have been scheduled. If they actually happen and we get to do science, then maybe. But yeah. given the, the success rate so far, I'm not holding my breath for when they'll actually go. Great. Well, I, I agree. It's a great planet to adopt. Uh, thanks so much for, for adding it to our weird and wacky list. Yay, I'm so glad for it to be on there. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us, Jen. It's been great talking radial velocities and your kind of research journey um, with you. It's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. Great. Well, don't forget to look out for our other news episode this month um, and let us know what you think of both of our shows. Uh, <laughs> Um, using either through Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org and you can find all our previous shows there as well as through most good podcasting apps if you want to help support the show and the exocast team then you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast where you can give us donations of as little as four dollars and every donation over 15 bucks will will get you a a shout out on the show of course and a big thank you to all of our previous donors on that and you can get your hands on Exocast merch, t-shirts, stickers, bags, and more at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Paul and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne at Chaos Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. 
Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org.